This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are the Paradoxical Eight. Bipedal, naked, large-brained, long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. Absolutely thrilled to be here, but more so I'm thrilled as a skin researcher for the last 20 years and as chair of the Department of Dermatology that this uh, group has decided to focus on skin and, and recognize the benefits of this organ to uh, understand more about who we are and what our cells um, really are made of. And of course, the first picture I'd like to do is to show a couple different hands than we have in our cover. Um, and these are the types of hands we like to look at, the type of skin we like to look at. And we have impressions about ourselves and our health that's really dictated by the skin. Now, of course, <clears throat> we recognize ourselves by our skin, and that's the most obvious function of all of what the skin is. There's no doubt that this is a different species, perhaps a chimp. And years ago in the field of dermatology, there was a very well-known dermatologist named William Montagna did quite a bit of uh, comparative anatomy, looking at the histology of different species, and uh, published a series of fascinating papers which described many similarities and many differences between uh, different species in terms of elements of the skin. And perhaps what was most interesting about this work is that this focus of those papers were really specifically to try to understand more about ourselves by studying skin because of, of primates, because at the time, it was easier for him to get primate skin than it was for him to get human skin. We also have more rare disorders that and somehow perhaps uh, emphasizes our common origin evolutionarily. On the left is an unfortunate gentleman in China with a, something called a large uh, hairy congenital nevus. And on the right is a primate that has alopecia. And you wonder if there's some uh, convergence here when you look at these types of photos. And then our government 
and in, in the technology-rich uh, technology world around us, exploits the skin for many things that you may or may not be aware of. And this is an image that shows uh, uh, assessing blood flow and temperature in the skin of individuals in an airport. And it's used actually as a covert lie detection system to look for people who might be flushing nervous. And it's also used during disease outbreaks for disease surveillance. This was particularly prevalent during the SARS uh, epidemic, trying to pick people who might have a fever out of a crowd. So the skin has been exploited by many, many different ways um, just from the outside. Sometimes looks can be deceiving and the skin can fool you. And we take it for granted in terms of what's going on underneath there. So I'd like to show you as, uh, as skin biologists some of the techniques and the approaches that we use to understand more about the skin. And to do that, we need to look more closely what's down deep within the skin. This is an illustration of what would happen if you cut a little cube out of the skin, captured four hair follicles. The top here is the surface of the skin. And as we look below the surface, we see many, many different cell types. In fact, this is probably the most complex organ that we have in our body with blood vessels, nerves, uh, endocrine functions. It can sweat. It can produce oils. It does all of this, and it must do it in a way that protects itself from the outside environment. And as we look more closely, we see wonderful things going on in these different cell types within the skin. On the right here is a time-lapse photography of a live hair follicle showing how the cells are constantly in motion, constantly differentiating, actually regenerating the organ over and over again. And much of what we've learned about basic developmental biology, about stem cells, comes from studying some of the phenomenal interactions that cells undergo in this simple little thing of a hair. Another way to look at the skin, instead of cutting through the skin vertically, is to cut across the top of the surface of the skin horizontally. And if you did that and shave just the top of the skin and stain what's in there, um, you see this network of immune cells. These are called dendritic cells. And our entire surface of our skin is covered by this net of cells that's interacting with the outside environment. And the classic uh, uh, thoughts about how those cells interact with the environment can, is illustrated in this little movie. Maybe some of you have seen this. This actually was a film uh, made in the 1950s. And it was really the dawn of our understanding of host immune defense and how immune cells work. And it shows a macrophage-like cell. And this little dot over here is a bacterium. And it's the basic concept of the time is that we devised specific cells that went out and could recognize bacteria as bad, as an external part that we don't want, could chase it down. As you could see in this movie, the, the macrophage is actually changing direction while it's swimming amongst all these blood cells and chasing down the bacteria until it finally can engulf it and kill it. Well, what we learned about 20 years ago now is that our system of, that our skin uses to defend against the outside environment is more than just specific cells that are tracking down bacteria, but that our skin surface also produces natural antibiotics. We've named these AMPs, or antimicrobial peptides. And this is a slide from some work I did when I was, I guess, about five years old, this was 20 years ago, that, that shows the brown staining of the first known 
uh, mammalian skin antibiotic. And this isn't produced by these specific immune cells, but it's actually produced by the cells that form the surface of the skin, suggesting that there's more to the way the skin interacts with the outside environment than we may otherwise think. In fact, I want to show you an example of a wonderful experiment that demonstrates just how important those surface uh, antibiotics are to us. And on one side here, uh, you see a, a picture of, a, of an agar plate. And the way this experiment is done is the investigator very carefully washed the surface of her hands, touched a bacteria, and in one case, the bacteria is Staph aureus, that's a bacteria that normally can make infections on the skin. We know it's dangerous to our skin. And if you touch those bacteria, wait a few minutes, and then go back later and touch a plate, you see that the bacteria were able to live on the surface of the skin. That's why the fingerprints show up. All those little dots are the bacteria that lived on the, on the surface of the skin and that got transferred to the plate. But if you do the exact same experiment, but now when you wash your hands, instead of touching a skin bacteria, you touch a intestinal bacteria like E. coli. This is a pathogen too, but it doesn't cause disease in the skin. You see that when you go back later and touch your fingers to a plate, all the E. coli are dead. So this is a great example and somewhat explains certain diseases. It explains why Staph aureus can be uh, a disease-causing organism on skin because it survives, and why E. coli is never found as a disease-causing organism uh, uh, in the skin situation, because the skin makes specific antimicrobials. What's particularly interesting about this experiment, though, is the all-important control. And as scientists, we love controls. And that is to do the same experiment but have sterile surgical gloves on. So you see what happens. When you have sterile gloves on, you touch Staph aureus and wait a while and touch your glove-covered bacteria on the plate. Some of the Staph aureus survived, but they're not, as, they're not doing so well. They actually missed the fact that they were on the surface of our skin. But look at what happened with the E. coli. These gloves touched the same number of E. coli as the bare fingertips did. And you can see the E. coli survive very, very well when the gloves are on your hand. So what does that mean practically for our everyday life, thinking about the skin? Well, it means that gloves protect bacteria from us. <laughs> Particularly bacteria that cause intestinal diseases. And you should think about that when you go through the cafeteria line. So that's my segue into some of our research that I like to talk about that I, I hope you'll agree with me or at least think about the fact that perhaps how we think about ourselves as humans shouldn't just be this antagonistic relationship between us defending against them. But as you'll hear later in, in the afternoon, there's quite a bit of information that's coming from the field of microbiome research that says that you know, these bacteria that are on us, perhaps they're not all so bad. And is it possible that a lot of the skin bacteria that normally survive on us are not just bystanders? And, and what I want to lead to is to ask you to think about the question, should we really completely rethink established approaches to the study of human origin based on these observations made in the skin? Classically, we think about this type of tree of life and evolution where the single-cell organisms evolved into complex organisms like humans. 
But I propose to you that perhaps we should flip this on its head and think about it really that we have, we have evolved to serve the master microbes. <laughs> and we're all these little different types of organisms. Some dropped off the evolutionary tree and some survive. But we're here in part to serve the microbe and perpetuate its survival. And I think you would agree that with the expansion of humans, the expansion of the microbes that we carry is going to be just as successful. So it's good for them too. So what's the evidence to support this kind of crazy thinking? Well, has human skin and microbe really co-evolved to serve each other? Are the microbes one of our own cells, not just something foreign, but is this part of us? And there's lots of evidence now to, to really, I think, very clearly uh, show us that specific types of bacteria, specific microbes on the skin, are absolutely essential to human health. How could this be? Well, one way we understood this is when we realized that the microbes aren't just living outside on the surface. They're not outside the door, but they're really integral in that little piece of skin that I illustrated to you earlier. This is some work done by a couple of scientists in my lab over the last few years showing how microbes are not just at the surface, and there's these little tiny purple dots, and the epidermis is the top layer of the skin. And if you look down on the hair follicle, you see lots of microbes. That wasn't such a surprise. But what was a surprise to us and many others is that if you look in areas that we thought were sterile, even in healthy skin that hasn't been injured, that's normally working, there's collections of microbes that live down amongst their, in our fat, in, in the tissues between our blood vessels. And they're there in a place where they could be interacting with the rest of our body. One of the ways that microbes benefit us on our skin can be illustrated by an experiment just like the one I showed you before, but with a little bit of a twist. So this is an experiment. Again, those three lines are fingertips. And now the investigator was a graduate student in my lab, Anna Kogan, washed her hands very carefully of the normal bacteria and touched a, a type of bacteria known as group A streptococcus. This is also known as the flesh-eating bacteria. So normal ones would be very dangerous. This was a type of bacteria that we attenuated, so it was real, relatively safe. But why we use these bacteria is that they are a pathogen, so they are foreign bacteria. We don't want them. And secondly, that they have a unique capacity to lyse red blood cells. So you can see them really obviously when you touch a plate that has blood in it. It lyses it. That's why it's all clear. So what happens if she has on her fingertips, not the bad guys, the flesh-eating bacteria, but these are normal fingertips colonized with the type of bacteria that you all have on your skin right now at a concentration of somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 per square centimeter. You have a lot of these bacteria known as staph epidermidis, epidermis for the skin. So these are not diseased. This isn't dirty. This is normal. And if you touch the skin, uh, these, this plate with skin that's populated with those, you can see those bacteria because they make these little tiny dot, dots here, shadows. So now here's the question. What happens if Anna, instead of washing her hands really carefully before touching the flesh-eating bacteria, just had let the normal bacteria survive on her skin, the healthy type of bacteria? Well, this is what happens. This, she touched the same amount of bacteria as on the far right here. But now, in this case, with your healthy bacteria there, 
It's fighting, it's helping you resist the flesh-eating bacteria. And she's gone on to actually identify new antibiotics from these types of bacteria. And there are many hundreds of new antibiotics that can be discovered just within our own ecosystem on our surface of the skin. Another way the bacteria control us is they influence how much of a rash, how much inflammation you can have. And this is a very dramatic experiment, again, using this model of the, of the skin cartoon that shows if you cut your skin or scratch your skin and it's absolutely sterile and you have no bacteria on it, the amount of swelling and redness and scaliness is much, much greater than if the skin has a normal microbiome. And you can see that here in this microscopic image, how thick a sterile wound is as, composed, as opposed to not infected, but a normal skin wound with a normal microbial community. So the microbes are defending us against flesh-eating bacteria. Some microbes are controlling our immune system. And this is some very recent work that we've done to look at a very common type of disease known as atopic dermatitis. There's a picture of a child in the corner here on the bottom with a complication of this disease. It's a type of eczema. And these patients, unfortunately, very often get staph infections. That was that bacteria that we showed you in the glove experiment. And when you look at normal population, this is several thousand samples, uh, most of the normal bacteria on healthy individuals produce these antibiotics that kill staphylococcal, staphylococcal disease-causing bacteria. But in patients with eczema, there's very few, actually, of the normal type of bacteria. They're displaced by another bacteria. It's neither disease-causing nor normal. It's kind of inert. It doesn't do us any good. And when that happens, these individuals then start to get staph infections. We saw a very, very strict correlation between the capacity to get a staph infection and whether or not you had these bacteria. So what can you do with this type of realization? Well, you can try to help people, which is ultimately why we do our research. And this is showing an experiment. This is the beginning of a large clinical trial we're doing in a number of cities. This is now eight patients, but kind of show you what happens. Um, this is the average result. And on the, bl the blue side is before treatment and the amount of staph aureus. And the red side is after you put a treatment on. So first is a control. You just put a moisturizing cream on. And you see the amount of the infected bacteria, if anything, goes up a little bit. It doesn't really change. And what if you put one of these inert bacteria, like are found in uh, patients with the disease? Well, nothing happens. If you put a cream that has those bacteria on it, the patients stay the same. They still have less, a lot of Staph aureus. But now here's strain two. This is a bacterial strain from a normal person that's transplanted onto the diseased skin. And you can see this, this, this bacterial strain, just in a single application, causes over a hundredfold decrease in the amount of infectious bacteria. This has worked at actually every single patient we've tried so far, so we better stop the study now, right, before we find out it doesn't work. But um, we're very excited about it, and I think it's further showing how some microbes, not all microbes, are our friends, and some microbes are clearly our enemies. So how should we think about this in this conference? Well, I'd like to propose to you the concept of the superorganism, we probably only inherit of our total genetic makeup on our bodies, probably only about 10% of it really comes from our parents, because 90% of the organisms that we carry around from us are microbes. 
So that means, when you think about it, most of the genetic material we're carrying around, we can exchange. We're not stuck with the things our parents gave us. We can exchange bacteria just by shaking hands. And if anybody's really healthy here, I'd like to shake hands with you. (laughs) And what it really also means, of course, we, we realize this already, but our environment can directly influence who we are. And this now starts to get us to a molecular and genetic explanation for something we've observed for a very long time. Certain environmental situations affect health, and that might be because those environmental situations are affecting the health of the cells on us that are microbes. So with that, I'd like to suggest that understanding the pro and antimicrobial systems of primates and humans can better define who we are. And I thank you very much for your time. Today's talk, what I'm going to discuss, really, are properties of human skin that support thermal regulation. Humans have an exceptional capability to protect against rises in body temperature or minimize heat storage when performing physical work in hot environments. This great thermoregulatory capacity probably provides several selective advantages. One, and these have been pointed out by Dr. Dan Lieberman, that in early hominins, that the ability to forage safely during peak heat times uh, allowed them to gather food where the hunters that would use the humans as prey uh, basically had to sit and use behavioral thermoregulation because they couldn't do muscular work in the heat of the day. Another potential uh, selective advantage is that some humans may have participated in persistence hunting. This required them to perform at a fairly substantial metabolic rate for extended durations, to move animals probably of larger size and maybe herbivores uh, for extended periods of time until these animals suffered high body temperatures and succumbed from uh, heat stroke and thus then became food for the hunters. So the question really arises then, why can humans thermoregulate in hot conditions while foraging and hunting? Now remember, we're talking two things, the skin for thermoregulation but also somehow the skin not only dumping the heat, but also maybe participating in the ability to sustain exercise. So humans can do this because they have really, from a thermoregulatory point of view, two unique features. The first is the ability to regulate a steady-state core temperature during physical exertion. That's pretty much dependent on the metabolic rate and reasonably independent of the environment. We won't talk much about that today, but that's very much made possible by the skin's capacity to support very high heat loss. Now, what I've done here is I've constructed a table that I'm going to address uh, in the subsequent slides, factors uh, that support high skin heat loss. If you look on the left here where we have the different factors, you'll notice that four of these obviously relate to heat exchange. Upright posture, which I'll explain, skin blood flow, sweating, and large surface area. Now, these provide certain advantages, but on the other hand, as I'm going to show you a little later, they provide also problems for the body, particularly cardiovascular in nature. And there's properties of the skin or organs within the skin that help offset these disadvantages, such as sodium reabsorption and several different reflexes, which I'll talk. So... The skin can provide large heat exchange, but it also can present problems when trying to perform sustained work in the heat. 
Let's talk first about upright posture. Uh, the advantages of an upright posture are fairly obvious. First of all, um, you have a smaller surface area exposed for solar radiation. As a result of that, you don't absorb the solar radiation as much, so you have less of environmental heat stress. Second, not as obvious, if you're upright and your skin's exposed and I'm locomoting and moving forward, I'm going to have more air movement across my skin than if I was haunched over. And as a result of that, I improve both the convective and evaporative heat capacities or the abilities for heat loss. And third, uh, bipedal locomotion also results in lower efficiency, so a lower metabolic rate and rate of heat production to be dissipated. Now, before I go on, I'm just going to give some very basics of heat balance. When an individual performs physical exercise, the amount of heat they produce is proportionally to how hard they exercise, because when muscles contract, only roughly 20% of that energy goes into contractile shortening. The remaining 80% is heat that needs to be dissipated by the body. Now, I showed the brain here because... As the body stores heat, unfortunately, there's a lot of myths that humans have selective brain cooling. They don't, that the brain's pretty much either similar to arterial blood pressure or arterial blood temperature, or recent evidence shows it might be slightly higher, is that as body temperature increases, we really rely on the skin for heat loss so that the central nervous system acting through the sympathetic nervous system has a proportionate uh, physiological uh, thermoregulatory system that, A, increases skin blood flow, that allows radiative and convective heat loss, and, two, increases sweating, which allows, if adequate biophysics, evaporation. Let's first discuss active vasodilation. Humans, compared to most species, uh, have very highly vascularized skin. And for you sitting in a room at a room temperature, maybe 20-some degrees, 22 degrees, you probably have your cutaneous vessels constricted. So normally, if we look over here, we have constricted cutaneous vessels. Now, when an individual goes into the heat, two things occur. First of all, the skin becomes warm, and that, re that re takes away the constrictor effect. And second, which is very unique to humans, at least to my knowledge, is that you have active cutaneous vasodilation. That sympathetic innervation uh, through a variety of different pathways cause active vasodilation of the skin in proportion to the heat load of the body. So the greater the heat load, the greater the vasodilation. And thus then, as this warm blood moves to the surface of the skin, if the temperature gradient is from the skin to the ambient conditions, we now can have convective and radiative heat loss. So in this figure cartoon, we show the impact of um, skin blood flow, and this is whole body skin blood flow, as a function of core temperature. What you can see is this. If an individual is resting, you can achieve very high skin blood flows, up to 8 liters a minute, which is extremely high because we know in a temperate environment, cardiac output is only about 5 liters per minute sitting, average human. With exercise, we find again that at a given threshold that this skin temperature will increase, but it cannot increase as high as it can when you're sitting at rest. And this is because of this blood pressure problem that you have constrictor tone so that you don't have as high of a vasodilation. But you probably can have skin blood flows maybe in a range of five to six liters. Now, the second avenue of heat loss is through eccrine sweating, eccrine sweat glands. Um, eccrine sweat glands, at least in their number uh, and, and, and dis 
dispersion are fairly unique to humans. We have about one and a half to four million. They're located over the entire skin. Uh, they're sympathetically cholinergic, uh, innervated. They uh, secrete a, a very hypotonic fluid to the surface of the skin. Obviously, as this fluid evaporates, it then results in cooling of the superficial areas of the skin and also the blood within the capillaries. So eccrine sweat glands are different from the apocrine glands, which are often located with hair, and again, they're located over the entire body. Now, humans can have very high levels of sweat rate, and as a result, if that sweats evaporate, they can have tremendous amounts of evaporative cooling. And this is why they can live in environments where the ambient temperature is higher than their skin temperature. Here we have uh, some data cartoon of a plot of whole body sweat rate as a function of exercise intensity. As we move this way, the people are running harder, and it's going from a cool to a hot condition. The first point I want to make is this. We've all seen crazy numbers in the literature about how, many peop how much people can sweat. Generally, it's not unusual if you're doing sustained hard work in the heat to have a sweat rate of one liter per hour, maybe a liter and a half. The highest sweat rates that I've seen doing thousands of experiments, whole bodies, about a little over two liters. People do report in the literature two and a half to three and a half liters per hour. I haven't seen them. I assume it's possible in a ex very extreme athlete for a short period of time. But high sweat rates can be sustained in the areas of, of a liter and a half. Now, when you have these high rates of water flux, you have to remember that the sweat comes from the interstitial fluid, which comes from the plasma. So as you sweat, you're going to be decreasing water in your plasma, in your interstitial space, in your extracellular fluid volume. So as a result, if you're sweating and you're not replacing fluids, your blood volume will decrease as you dehydrate. So now what we see is that as an individual is exercising in the heat for whatever purpose of foraging or hunting, that we have this great capacity for heat loss, but we have two penalties, and this is shown in a cartoon. The first is that if we look, what we have here is the blood distribution in a person standing like myself in a cool environment. You can see that the blood's pretty much distributed into the thoracic area. It's easier to return blood volume to the heart so that you can sustain cardiac output or how much blood flow goes per unit time. Now, with heat stress, you have two things that occur first. One is you have the increased skin blood flow, but what I also didn't mention, if the superficial veins become warm, they become compliant, so the blood sits in the periphery. This means that the blood's not in the thoracic area, it's more difficult to return to the heart, reduces filling, and makes it more difficult to sustain cardiac output while simultaneously performing exercise. So one, the displacement. Two, the second problem is that, as I had told you, that if you decrease your total body water and dehydrate, your liquid portion of your blood decreases, so your plasma volume, your blood volume reduces. All at the same time is when I'm standing upright, so I have to work against gravity to perfuse the brain, and I'm exercising and have to perfuse skeletal muscles. So this really causes a conundrum in terms of the human body. Well, the skin helps to address this, and I'm going to give several ways that it, that it does this. First of all, not only do eccrine sweat glands secrete hypotonic fluid, but they have the ability to reabsorb sodium, that, there's, that basically you have a, a reabsorption duct. So that as the sweat comes down, that humans can reabsorb sodium. And how much sodium they can reabsorb depends on how well they're acclimatized 
to the heat. Here's some data uh, that shows local sweat rate over an area of skin and the sodium concentration in the secreted sweat in one people that are unacclimatized to the heat, uh, people that live in Boston in the wintertime, and people that are acclimatized in the heat, people that live in Atlanta, where I live currently, in the summertime. And what you can see that uh, obviously the higher the sweat rate, the less the efficient the act of transport is because the sodium is moving by and you can only retake re up so much. But with acclimatization, you can greatly reduce the amount of sodium in the sweat. And in fact, you can basically have or have a third of much, a third less sodium in the sweat after climatization. So it may not be unusual at all to see sodium in secreted sweat on a climatized person, maybe 50, 60 milliequivalents, and 10, maybe not 10, but 20 milliequivalents. Well, this is important because this sodium that's reabsorbed goes, goes back into the interstitial, into the plasma, and into the extracellular space. And when we look at the extracellular fluid space, the volume in that space is very much dependent on sodium concentration. That's the primary cation that's the difference between the intracellular space. So as we absorb sodium into our, our back into our plasma, our extracellular sodium concentration increases, and this results in an osmotic gradient that causes you to pull water from inactive muscle, where water is plentiful. So this retention of sodium then allows the inactive muscle to pull, act as a reservoir. So this is a way that you can defend your blood volume or your plasma volume by moving water throughout the body. So it's very important because at a given level of dehydration, plasma volume would be reduced less. Now, what's also not as obvious, and it's being much more well understood lately, is that skin provides sensory information that supports thermoregulation. And just simplistically, I'm going to call these cold receptors, warm receptors, and mechanical receptors. But through these receptors, we can sense wetness, and we also can sense thermal comfort or thermal sensations. The wetness it, it, sensation, I'm going to show you in a minute, is very important because as the skin's wet, that means that skin's not evaporating. That helps you basically reduce your sweating rate so you have less wasteful sweating to, to defend your, your uh, body water. And thermal sensations are extremely important, is that A, they drive uh, behavioral thermal regulation. Skin temperature, skin wettedness, as well as heart rate are what drive that. And in addition, I'm going to show you an, a reflex that's probably related to the skin that's not often, often appreciated that can actually drive up core temperature to help reduce skin blood flow requirements. Let's first move and look at the impact of wet skin on sweat suppression. Here we have on the y-axis total body sweating rate during minutes of exercise where individuals are performing a given metabolic rate of exercise over a 30-minute duration. One time they're not acclimatized to the heat and the other time they're acclimatized. During this period of time, the investigators are continually ramping up humidity. So here in the beginning, it's dry, and here at the end, it's very humid. It keeps getting more and more humid. First thing is, is that you can note that if humans acclimatize to the heat, they can have a much higher sweating rate. So you see the much higher sweating rate in acclimatized individuals. But second, and very important, is, is that you can see that as the humidity increases, the sweating rate decreases, whether they're unacclimatized or not. So the body's sensing that the skin's wet, that the sweat's not being evaporated, it's being wasted, and as a result, I'll tune down my wetness. 
And this really can have a lot of important implications. Um, Here's some old studies that were done where they got a large number of people and they had them perform the same amount of physical activity outdoors in a desert and a tropic environment. So they had the same metabolic rates, so they had roughly the same amounts of heat to be dissipated, but on one condition, the tropic, the skin's wet, and on the other condition, the desert, the skin's dry. What you can see that for 24-hour sweat rates for this population, it greatly reduced the water requirements from about maybe five liters down to two or three, so half the water requirements. So by reabsorbing sodium, I can move water from reservoirs within my body to defend blood volume. By having skin wettedness, I can sense that, and I can reduce how much I lose and how much I dehydrate. So skin's very important then for allowing individuals to minimize the effects of dehydration. Now, I don't have a good slide to show this. If I did, it would take my 10 minutes to to, uh, explain it. But when humans basically perform exercise under most environmental conditions, how high their core temperature rises is a function of metabolic rate. And it's pretty much independent of the environment. But what you see as the environment gets warmer and the skin gets warmer, there's a point where the steady state core temperature will elevate. So the core temperature will elevate, but there's still sufficient biophysics that, it, that you can just maintain that. So for some reasons, and it's been known for a long time, that humans then will somehow pick to have a higher core temperature at times. And this really kind of befuddled physiologists because back in the old days, they used to think high core temperature's bad, low core temperature's uh, good. Sort of like Animal Farm, four legs good, two legs bad. Um, so what Dr. Rao, Larry Rao from University of Washington pointed out very elegantly is that this actually provides an advantage. And here I'm going to show you a, a table but here we have an individual exercising in the heat three, three different times, same metabolic rate, same amount of evaporative heat loss. But here we have now a core temperature of 38, skin temperature of 34. So we have a core to skin temperature gradient of 4 degrees. What we see then is if we do the calculations, you would require a skin blood flow of about 2.5 liters. Now, if it got warmer outside and the skin temperature went up, you have a smaller gradient, and now it requires more, because you have a smaller gradient now from the skin to the ambient, so you have to move more blood through the skin to have the same amount of heat loss to defend core temperature. So what happens is is when core temperature actually rises up, it widens the core to skin temperature gradient, and it reduces the skin blood flow requirements, thus alleviating some of the cardiovascular stress. So in summary, I think that when we look at the skin and how it supports thermoregulation, we not only have to think about heat loss, but we have to think about the other functions that it it does that supports the cardiovascular system. I think we've established that skin has an exceptional heat loss capability, that you probably can have maximum skin blood flows up to 8 liters. Um, That would be for a seated person in the heat, but very substantial that you can have very high sweating rates, at least in maybe the Olympic, unique Olympic athlete, up to three liters per hour, but they're probably generally much lower in other individuals. And that skin supports blood pressure regulation. One, through sodium conservation, which pulls water from the intracellular spaces, particularly inactive muscle, to help support blood volume. Two, by suppressing the wetted skin so that we don't have wasteful sweat, all of these acting against dehydration and then through thermal sensations. 
by at one working to allow behavioral thermoregulation so that the individual could titrate the workload or seek shade so they don't work too hard, but also probably combined with information from baroreceptors within the cardiovascular system to allow the thermoregulatory system to allow core temperature to drift up and reduce cardiovascular strain. Thank you. So as we all know, mammalian skin is decorated with diverse appendages, uh, including uh, mammary glands and uh, hair follicles with their associated sebaceous glands and apocrine glands, which are um, found in hair follicles, mainly in the axilla regions in humans, and also eccrine sweat glands, which play an extremely important regulation in human thermoregulation. So the questions I'd like to address in this talk are, firstly, how did these organs evolve? And secondly, do they have a common evolutionary origin? For the most part, skin has not left us with a fossil record. And so this makes it very difficult to answer these types of evolutionary questions. The one approach to addressing these issues is to ask um, whether the development and genetics of these organs can give us some clues to their evolution. So during embryonic development, it turns out that the very early stages in the formation of mammary glands, hair follicles, and sweat glands are morphologically very similar. So the mammary gland uh, develops from the ectoderm, which this is the outermost uh, layer of the embryo, and it's diagrammed here in pink, and underlying mesenchymal cells, which are shown as as black dots. And the first sign of glandular development is a localized thickening in the ectoderm, which is called a placode. And this then buds down into the mesenchyme and induces the formation of a fat pad. After that, the mammary sprout continues to grow downwards and starts to branch and develops a lumen. If we look at hair follicle development, we find that this is also characterized Firstly, by the formation of a localized thickening in the ectoderm, followed by formation of a bud. And after that stage, the development of hair follicles diverges from that of mammary glands. The last organ to develop in uh, embryonic uh, life out of these three is the eccrine sweat glands, which form around birth. And these also form first through thickening of the surface ectoderm budding into the mesenchyme, and then further downgrowth, which in this case involves a curling of the um, tube, of a tube to form the gland and the development of the lumen. Another thing that these organs all have in common is that we know that it's extremely important that the cells of different types are able to communicate with each other. Uh, so in each case, the epithelial and mesenchymal cells engage in extensive crosstalk between these different cell types. So this crosstalk is made possible by the secretion of signaling factors from one cell that are then received by another cell and cause uh, changes in, in this receiving cell that can include changing its proliferation status uh, or its uh, fate. Two of the really important cell-cell signaling pathways that are involved at early stages of appendage development are the Wnt signaling pathway, 
and the ectodysplasin or EDA signaling pathway. In each case, these involve secreted wind ligands that is secreted ligands that are received by a receptor. In the wind pathway, the ligand is known as wind. So this is made by another cell and it floats out and then starts to interact with receptors on the receiving cell. And this causes a whole series of intracellular changes that end up with the activation of target gene expression. And these genes then can uh, cause a change in fate of the cell. Ectodysplasin signaling similarly involves a secreted ligand, in this case called EDA, and this interacts with its receptor and causes a different set of changes intracellularly, but these also result in expression of target genes. So it turns out that Wnt signaling is absolutely key for the formation of all of these different appendages. In its absence, they completely fail to form, and if you overactivate this pathway using genetic tricks in mice, we see that you get extra appendages forming. <coughs> Downstream of Wnt signaling, um, the ectodysplasin pathway is activated, and this requires Wnt in order to get started, but then takes over from Wnt in pr- further promoting the formation of these organs. So both the similar morphology and the similar molecular pathways involved in the formation of these diverse organs suggest that they may have a common origin. If we look during evolution, our ancient ancestors, the sauropods, um, had at least some of them were thought to have a glandular skin. And this was um, selected for in the therapsids, and these, had, these um, animals lacked scales, in fact, and, and had um, completely glandular skin. And people have, have um, argued that one of the functions of this glandular skin was to provide um, moisture through skin secretions to the eggs of these creatures, which are known to have been very thin-walled and would likely have dehydrated otherwise. The development of hair has been argued to be possibly a um, specialization that could have led to, that could have aided in the delivery of glandular secretions to eggs. So the mammals that exist today fall into several classes of which the monotremes still lay eggs and they they lack nipples and suckle their young via specialized hairs. And these animals include the spiny in anteaters and platypus, uh, whereas marsupials um, do have nipple prim- nipples, uh, but these um, nipple primordia actually co- co-form hair follicles and mammary glands during development, as I'll show you uh, in, a, in a minute. The, youth, the placental animals, which include ourselves, have developed hairless nipples, and these probably facilitate the suckling of newborns. So there's also some molecular evidence for this um, kind of a scheme. So it was thought that um, the uh, mucus-secreting surface epithelia make um, antimicrobial enzymes as an important function of these epithelia, and these include xanthine oxidoreductase and lysozyme. And as glands developed in order to more 
uh, effectively secrete these um, antimicrobials and eventually forming uh, mammary glands. At, at the same time as this uh, development or evolution occurred, the gene encoding lysozyme actually became uh, duplicated. And one of the copies um, evolved into the alpha-lactalbumin gene, and this encodes an important component of milk and is also involved in the um, uh, manufacture of lactose, another uh, important component of milk. It's also been shown that xanthine oxidoreductase has a secondary function in addition to its antimicrobial properties. It's also important in encasing fat droplets in milk and allowing their secretion. So these enzymes seem to have adopted additional functions that allow them to help in milk production. Another piece of uh, evidence that for a common origin for mammary glands and hair follicles came, as I uh, already mentioned, from um, studies of uh, marsupial mammary development. So in marsupials, the nipple develops, as I mentioned already, from a thickening in the ectoderm, and this elongates and develops two types of sprouts, a primary sprout and secondary buds, And these secondary buds go on to form mammary glands, whereas the primary sprouts sprouts develop into hair follicles with associated sebaceous glands. So this is all happening during the embryonic development of the marsupial. And at the the last stage of development, the nipple actually everts, and it retains these sebaceous glands and, of course, the mammary glands, but the hair follicles degenerate in most marsupials. Although... um, in, uh, it is known that koala bears actually have uh, hairs hair still emanating from their nipples. So this common development of um, these different types of organs in the, the same structure um, really provides um, a, a support for the idea that these things may have co-evolved. So of course the numbers and locations of mammary glands have evolved to fit the litter size and feeding position. So in humans, we generally have one baby and we have two mammary glands. Um, the babies, you usually, we usually hold our babies to our chest and that's where um, the mammary glands are located. By contrast, um, in pigs have very large litters of, with an average size of 10 and they have 12 to 14 nipples or teats. Um, they tend to feed uh, in a lying position and their nipples are uh, located all along the side of their body. And cattle um, generally have a litter size of one and only four nipples or teats, and they um, feed standing up with the uh, mammary uh, teats in an inguinal position. So what are the mechanisms that may have permitted this adaptation of mammary gland numbers and locations to fit the the needs of these species? So in many, um, in many mammals, uh, the embryonic mammary glands actually form along um, a line between the fore and hind limb buds in the embryo, and this is known as the milk line or mammary line, and it gradually becomes fragmented, um, resulting in the formation of mammary buds. And this is diagrammed for a mouse embryo. We can see something very similar uh, in the rabbit embryo, and this is a scanning electron microscopy 
that allows us to actually visualize this raised uh, mammary uh, ridge. And this can also be seen in human embryos. So as I mentioned, uh, the Wnt signaling pathway plays key roles in the initiation of mammary gland development. So it doesn't, there's no mammary development without this signal. And if we overactivate it, you can get extra mammary glands. And we can visualize this nicely by looking at one of the Wnt ligands called Wnt10b. And here we're using a technique called in situ hybridization to look at where the Wnt10b mRNA is being made. And this is shown, this appears as a, a reddish-brown uh, stain. So we can see this stains all along the milk line and is elevated in the developing mammary buds. And interestingly, in mice which lack um, a secreted inhibitor protein, which would be expected to result in um, excess uh, wind signaling, we find that these develop extra nipples and extra mammary glands. So these findings suggest that changes in the pattern of Wnt signaling activity could underlie the adaption of mammary gland location and number. So like the mammary gland, our hair and sweat gland uh, formation varies um, greatly between mammalian species, but also varies within species. So if we think about uh, humans, of course we have nice long hair on our head and very uh, short, fine hairs over the rest of our body. But within our species, the hair can um, vary greatly in its texture uh, and um, in its thickness. Our apocrine glands, as I mentioned, are mostly axial, and we have equine sweat glands all over our body. By contrast, um, a polar bear has... um, hair that's of rather similar length over most of its body, but this hair is specially adapted and has uh, large air pockets that allow the uh, much better thermoregulation for the polar bear in cold conditions. It also interestingly has apocrine glands on the soles of its feet and leaves a scent trail with these, and its eccrine glands are confined to the soles of the feet, unlike in humans. And horses uh, apparently completely lack eccrine glands, and instead they um, sweat by a different mechanism that uh, utilizes apocrine glands, which are located all over the body of the horse. And when these are active, you get this lathering appearance that we see, uh, for instance, in racehorses. And the hair of the body is mostly, um, the hair of the horse is mostly short, but has um, specialized. Um, appearances on their tail and the mane where it's very long. So there's an incredible amount of variation here. For both hair follicles and eccrine sweat glands, the ectodysplasin signaling pathway plays very key roles um, at early stages of development. And indeed, loss of function of this pathway in humans leads to syndromes where there's really an absence of all these organs. More relevant to evolution, though, it turns out that there's a variant of the receptor for ectodysplasin, um, which is associated with increased activity of this uh, receptor. And in Asian populations, this, recept- this variant receptor is um, specifically seen in people who have thick, straight hair and increased numbers of, of eccrine uh, sweat glands. So in, um, particularly in the Li and Han populations, this variant is extremely uh, predominant. 
And this is illustrated here using it, um, looking at Asian populations um, and individuals who have either straight or non-straight hair. And you can see that if you have the uh, 370A variant of EDAR, you're much more likely to have straight hair, whereas individuals with non-straight hair have a more or less equal uh, chance of having either the A or the V variant. We can model this in uh, mice by uh, genetically replacing the, uh, the uh, V variant of the gene with an A variant. And this, in mice as well as in humans, results in the formation of thicker hair and also in an increased number of sweat glands. So see, here we're looking at the uh, foot pad of a mouse, of actually several mice, and these are stained with um, blue stain to reveal the glands. And you can see the uh, greatly increased numbers of these uh, glands in the A variant. So mutation of EDAR to a more active form may underlie a subset of human variation in hair thickness and straightness and sweat gland density. So just to summarize what I told you, um, evidence from development, genetics, and evolutionary studies suggest that mammary glands, sweat glands, and hair follicles may be may be derived from a common precursor. The function of this precursor may have been to hydrate and protect thin-walled eggs and later um, developed a nutritional functions as well. Mammary gland evolution preceded um, the uh, birth of live young. And mammary gland adaptation may have occurred in part through altered control of wind signaling, whereas variation in hair thickness and sweat gland density are associated with altered uh, ectodysplasin signaling. Now, there's an awful lot that we don't know. Um, some very uh, straightforward questions, such as what controls the formation of different types of appendages in specific regions of the body? How and why did human eccrine glands become ubiquitous over our body and intermingled with hair follicles? And very straightforward questions like why is human scalp hair longer than body hair? And of interest to many men in the audience, why do many human males lose their hair in a particular pattern? And I'm sure you can think of many additional questions um, that we um, really don't know the answers to yet and would like to. So just to reiterate that in future studies, because of the relative dearth of fossil records for mammalian skin, skin these types of developmental and molecular approaches to skin evolution can be particularly useful. And this is just my lab, uh, who contributed to some of the work that I showed you. And thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.